So, Mark. Yes? Late in this movie, Woody Harrelson gives a speech to Robert Redford about how Redford should change the logo of his company from a griffin to a cuckoo. And he gives a whole speech about how he has been cuckolded by Robert Redford. An awkward moment. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the movie understands that it's awkward, and it sure is. Where you're like, ah, yes, Woody Harrelson, who is still on Cheers at this point. <laughs> oh my god, I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, like, Cheers ends, like, a month and a half after this movie comes out. But, like, a show where his character is, like, young and dumb, and that's the main defining trait. Gives a whole speech about how he was, like, cucked by Robert Redford. Which, I mean, he was. He was, yeah, can't argue with that. But anyway, I was wondering, if you had to have a bird be your mascot, what bird would you choose? I would choose one of, if not the best birds, which is, of course, the kiwi. Okay. It is, lives a its life. A flightless bird. A flightless bird that should be living its life in a very safe environment where it doesn't need to fly. It runs around nice and happy. I mean, I'm not nocturnal, but I appreciate the grind of waking up at night to eat your bugs and then sleeping all day. Do they eat bugs? I assume so. That's what their beak looks like. But they're super cute and fluffy and nice, I think. And have no natural predators except for ones that are introduced by the outside world, such as jobs, employment, an eight-hour workday, etc. Okay, that's a good answer. Yeah, I hadn't even really considered flightless birds, honestly. Some of the best birds are flightless birds. No, you're right about that, you know, because you got the ostrich, you got, like... Penguins. Cassowary. Those things are demons, though. They're terrifying. They're so scary. I'll say this for Jurassic World Dominion, which is not a good movie. It does lean into the bird dinosaur thing more than any Jurassic movie has before. And there is one that has like a real cassowary vibe and is appropriately freaky. They're all scary cassowaries. Yeah. Honestly, most big birds are. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's just wrong and it's alarming. The birds shouldn't be that big. Yeah, a bird should not be taller than you. Uh, now I'm just thinking about more flightless birds. Emus. Penguins. I it might be a turkey for me, honestly. Turkeys are great. Except when they wake you up because they're gobble-gobble-gobbling at like 7 in the morning. That's not an issue I've had. I don't remember where I was. Probably some like farm hotel. Um, I love to eat turkey. So that's an advantage. I think they're kind of funny looking. They are very funny looking. They are native to the Americas, which I think is cool. Their faces are ugly, though. That's part of the appeal to me. Okay. They're so weird. Um, and of course, you know, the third option would be like a, a bird for you, a bird for me, and a bird for this podcast. Now, we basically have a bird mascot who what I think is... is flightless. Wait, who's our bird mascot? Of this podcast? Of this podcast, yeah. A flightless bird mascot? Yeah. He ain't about to be plucked. Too groovy for gravy, too precious for PT. Oh, he can't fly, can he? He's a funky little feather-bearing waterfowl. I mean, ducks can fly, but how are the ducks? certainly can't because he is garbage he is a demon he has not been brought up in a while and i truly enjoyed my respite i think he's just too heavy like i think that's the issue well he doesn't have wings because he has arms with hands he has like feathers coming off his arms though right i think i think he just has arms of course i mean another factor is that he cannot see or at least the actor inside the howard the duck suit could not see well, I'm not anticipating the actor in the Howard the Duck suit taking off. Okay, I can't find anything with him not wearing a shirt. So I assume... And he's legally required to wear pants because Disney sued. Yeah, but it looks like he does not have wings coming off of his arms in the comics. Okay, alright. So that would be another reason Howard can't fly. Yes. And he's weighed down with the sin of the world. <laughs> I guess the only feathers that we get a lot of attention to are the ones on the top of his head that are, like, a secondary sex characteristic. Uh, I hate it! I hate that movie so much! Did you pick a real bird besides the turkey? Oh, you did like the, the turkey. turkey head. Yeah. I hate the turkey head so much. No, turkeys are good. They're so weird. They're so good, though. Because they taste good. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's such a weird speech in a movie full of, honestly, pretty bizarre speeches. Do you... Want to dive in? 
I think we're going to have a ton to talk about. So, like, we could keep, like, screwing around talking about birds for a while, but we might as well just get up, move on. I think we should just dive into the warm waters of an indecent proposal. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to the least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And what gives you the goddamn right, Robert Redford, to look as good as you do? He looks so good. Also, are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at Adrian Lyne's classic What Would You Do movie, Indecent Proposal. Have you seen this before? I had never seen this before. I hadn't either. And I felt that it was time for us to do an erotic thriller because it's been a while. And what with the, I believe at this point, now erotic 90s, how did, or, uh, you must remember this <laughs> series. Let's be clear. I would also listen to erotic 90s, how did this get made? I, I mean, they have that series basically going. They've done so many. Now, I actually don't know if erotic 90s will have started at this point. When erotic 80s began, Karina Longworth just said, and erotic 90s later this year. Yeah. I suspect it probably will not have. If anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, just the best podcast about movies is You Must Remember This by Karina Longworth looking at Hollywood history. And this year she has been doing an incredible series that we've alluded to a couple of times on sex in movies in the 1980s. And there will be a follow-up series on sex in movies in the 1990s. So Mark and I have been hearing for weeks about the sex films of the 70s and 80s, and especially the role of Adrian Lyne through movies like Nine and a Half Weeks and Fatal Attraction. And so for us, this is a nice midpoint after those and before Karina Longworth gets into the 90s. And I mean, this is one of the more famous ones, I'd say. The image of them rolling around on the money having sex is a very iconic image. I would love to know how many people did that based on this movie. I watched this with my fiance. I guess this episode is coming out like two days after my wedding. So <laughs> at the time this comes out, it'd be my wife. But we were watching it and she was just like, money is dirty. Like, don't roll around having sex on money, like holding fists up to like crevices. Like, that's just getting like all the gunk that's on money all over your body. It's not sanitary. That is certain. It's also, they're not just having sex with dirty money all over the place. They're also doing it on a waterbed. I don't think I even noticed that because I was too distracted by how gross the money is. I also hate touching money. It is so gross. I'm also going to acknowledge, I did watch this with my, uh, currently my fiance, and before we put it on, when I was just, was just explaining the premise of the movie, she was like, now clearly we would do this. Like, we would take the million dollars. I would. Yeah. The solution is just, you just talk about it. You agree that we are going to talk about it. As yeah. opposed to their rule of, like, we're not going to talk about it. Yeah, you just address it. I think our marriage would survive, if not thrive, with the added million dollars. <laughs> or at least a cool half if you split it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it should be invested in something that is carrying equal value, such as uh, building your own dream house. Robert Redford's a creep in this, though. Like, he's he super hot, but he is a creep. Which, you know, a lot of... The discussion about this movie over the 30 years since it came out has kind of boiled down to, like, who do you think the movie is invested in and how much does it recognize Robert Redford as a creep? Because going in, I knew this movie was a gigantic hit. It made over $100 million in the U.S. and Canada and, like, another $150 million internationally. What I didn't know was that it was like a pretty controversial movie and was critically panned. I didn't know it was critically panned because it's had such a long shelf life. Like people still talk about it. Yeah. And so I went back and I read some reviews from the time. And actually, uh, while I was eating lunch today, I watched the Siskel and Ebert episode on YouTube where they talk about it. Oh, that's cool. Basically, all of the show is on there. And it's a pretty fun thing to just like dip into every once in a while. So sometimes I'll do that over lunch. Watch some old Siskel and Eberts. And did... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to ask what the reviews had to say. I mean, like, I think that episode illustrated it pretty well where, like, they were divided pretty strongly. Where Gene Siskel was like, this movie's stupid. It's, like, kind of engaging at times. But it is a movie that could be solved with a conversation. Like, if they had just talked about it, if they had had a better plan going in, then they would have been good. 
And his other big objection was that, and this is an objection a lot of people embraced and probably was one that people went in kind of wary of, given the criticism that Line had taken for Fatal Attraction, where Siskel and a lot of other critics argued that the movie treats Demi Moore's character, Diana, as an object to be debated over by these men. And Ebert came down very differently where he's saying, look, people are not always rational. People are not always going to like make up a perfect plan. And also that would be a worse movie. And then he was arguing that actually Diana does have a decent amount of agency. She is one of the people making the choices, which is what the screenwriter, Amy Holden Jones, also argued. That's kind of where I came down. I really enjoyed this movie. I did enjoy this movie. Honestly, one of the funniest things to me is that in a very early scene, you see a woman reading Backlash. Yes. And so you get a sense of where the movie thinks it is lying. And I don't think it does a perfect job. And I think it does fall into a lot of the men's feelings and focusing on the men. But you can tell the movie is making an attempt at being about Diana. Ultimately, this whole movie is about people who are unable to communicate with one another. Yes. All three of them. Just All three un- of them. Unable to have normal human conversations. Like, the most effective communication in the movie is anytime Robert Redford's character, Gage, just says, like, this is now a financial transaction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of interesting because the deal is ultimately his character is somebody who can really only make sense of how to engage with the world from the perspective of, like, I'm a billionaire and I can buy whatever I want. Right. I just think it's so funny that... There's, like, the general consensus for most people is, yeah, we'd do this. Yeah. And it's a question of how you'd handle it, not if you'd do it. A million dollars is just a lot of money. It's a lot of money for one night of sex. Now, I think one of the wrinkles in this movie, and this gets at just how sleazy Redford's character is, is that, like, you know, you and I cannot live or do whatever we want, but... We are not, like, on the ropes in any circumstance. Whereas David and Diana, Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore, they are in a position where, like, they need this money or they are going to lose their home. Yeah. And David doesn't have a job. So they're in a very different position where there's this question of coercion. Like, it's easy for us to say, like, yeah, it's a million dollars. Like, for a night of sex, like, yeah, you do it and you get the million dollars. It's really worth considering whether they have the ability to say no to this offer or not. (sighs) I don't think they do have that ability. And I think we are both coming at this from the angle of people that are in stable relationships. I mean, I can't, I don't live inside your now marriage, but from my understanding, we both are coming from happy, healthy relationships. Again, we're recording this in advance, but I presumably just got married. So I'm theoretically, well, I mean, there might be, there might be a huge twist coming in the lives of Will Redmond, but. Which would also be wild, because then, like, that would come up in an episode in, like, November at the rate we're recording. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, that's not going to happen. And I just think that the movie, also, I didn't realize going in, because I assumed it was coming from a happy couple, but they are on the ropes at the time. Their relationship, and we're going to talk about this, is, like, tumultuous at best. Yes. Like, it runs very hot in all directions like they can be like very passionate but they can also be like Literally screaming and throwing, throwing things, things at each at other, each other. Yeah. at like pretty low provocation like she throws something at him because he left clothes on the ground not not good and i think that's an interesting wrinkle to all of this too where part of what's going on in the whole movie is like they are both trying to salvage their marriage and they have this financial pressure put on top of that what's also kind of crazy and like i think is worth keeping in head is like these characters are 26 woody harrelson doesn't look 26 (laughs) he does not but we're told in the prologue that they met in their high school glee club david proposed at 19 and it's been seven years since then they're not 26 it does if they looked 26 i think this movie would be even better yeah woody harrelson's like how old is he at filming If I find out he's 26, I'm going to be really embarrassed. No, he's not 26. In 1992, Woody Harrelson was 32. Okay, yeah. Like, 32-year-old people, it's still interesting. 
But it also does add an element that I didn't consider at all that they were 26. Because, like, yes, I heard the line, but I did not process it. Right. I had to remind myself of it as I was putting together notes for this episode. And it's not like Demi Moore looks old, but she also doesn't really look 26. What she looks is great in this I mean, movie. yes. She looks so good in this. She genuinely, lo- like looks incredible throughout this movie and like especially like that dress that dress <laughs> she looks good it is a great dress it's like the perfect line of like classy and sexy at the same time where like it's a thing of like it doesn't really show anything but it like suggests a lot i mean it's just a very good dress and this is demi Moore at like kind of her peak sex symbol period where she's mm-hmm. coming off of ghost and a few good men She'd been naked on the cover of Vanity Fair twice in the early 90s, once in body paint, and then once she did this really famous, like, pregnant nude cover that was, like, the first time someone had done a major photo shoot like that. Oh, I know that picture. So that's where she's coming in off of all this. Woody Harrelson, as I said, is still on Cheers, but his movie star career had been taking off, too. White Men Can't Jump is the year before this. Natural Mm -hmm. Born Killers is the next year, so... It's weird, like, remembering that Woody Harrelson had this career in the 90s as, like, the guy who is in, like, edgy prestige movies. He doesn't have that vibe at all. Like, the vibe of Woody Harrelson is just a guy. But I guess that's the point. You think you're looking at just a guy, and then someone says, let there be carnage, and you're looking at something totally different. (sighs) Get that bag, Woody. So we've got them. And then, of course, Robert Redford is like, you know, in his 90s zone. Quiz show is out the next year. So, like, in addition to looking great and starring in movies, he is also directing good movies. He's just a handsome guy. He's, like, running the Sundance Film Festival as, like, the indie Miramax era is exploding. It's a great time to be Robert Redford. Is there ever a bad time to be Robert Redford? I mean, not really. I don't know anything about his life, but I know he has a great face. He sure does. So we have not talked about Adrian Lyne on this show before. We mentioned him on our Top Gun episode because Lyne is part of this generation of British directors along with Ridley and Tony Scott and Alan Parker who all came up directing commercials in the UK and then made the hop over to Hollywood bringing that kind of slick commercial directing style. And Ridley Scott gets started off doing a lot of like science fiction and stuff like that and Tony Scott's doing action movies. For Adrian Lyne, a lot of what he's doing are, like, sex movies. I didn't realize how many of his movies were, like, panned. Even um, Flashdance, I learned from You Must Remember This, was, like, not a critical darling, to say the least. Yeah, again, like, if you have not listened to this erotic 80s miniseries on You Must Remember This, you really should, because that is the context Mark and I are coming in from. Yeah, it really has informed my view of this movie. We feel like we've been talking about this for the last three months. But yeah, so he had these movies that were controversial, oftentimes were very panned, and he had Jacob's Ladder immediately before this. But before that was Fatal Attraction, which is the nexus point of all the different, like, Adrian Line threads, where it makes a ton of money. There is, of course, sex at the middle of it between Michael Douglas and Glenn Close. But Fatal Attraction is not just a financial hit, it's also a critical hit. It gets a Best Picture nomination. Adrian Lyne gets a Best Director nomination for it. But, like so many of these Adrian Lyne movies, it's pretty controversial, where people are saying, wow, is this movie, like, condemning a single career woman to die as, like, a horrible thing who married women need to literally fight back against? (laughs) Who married women need to kill. Exactly. And that movie is specifically called out in Backlash, which you mentioned earlier, this bestseller of cultural criticism, talking about how the culture of the 1980s had pushed back on feminist advances by making feminists into villains. It specifically cites Fatal Attraction, and in Indecent Proposal, the secretary in Diana's office is reading it, which feels, if not pointed, at least winking. Mm Mm-hmm. I also, I mean, having listened to the You Must Remember This episode, I think Adrian Lyne would agree with some of the critique of Fatal Attraction in that way because they had to change the ending due to, like, audience reaction. Because the movie that both he and Glenn Close signed up to do is more, like, less with Alex being such a villain. Yes, that's true. But, I mean, I think the money really made him a 
proud of the movie, I'm sure. And the Oscar nomination. It's the only best and director the Oscar nomination, nomination he's ever And yeah, true. Did you see Deepwater? I didn't. This is... Is that him? This year, 2022, was the release of Adrian Lyne's first movie in 20 years. And it is the Ben Affleck, Ana de Armas movie. The one where they met, and then they were dating for a while, and we got all those, like, paparazzi shots in the early pandemic of, like, ah, oh, Ben Affleck is going out to get Duncan for him and Ana de Armas. And then they broke up, and then Ben Affleck started dating J-Lo again, and then they got engaged, and then this movie finally came out. It's so funny that that whole story is really, honestly, it's really funny. Anyway, Deepwater is pretty good. It's, like, not a great movie, but it's, like, a pretty good movie. And, like, especially now, it's the kind of thing that you just pop on on Hulu. It's tense. It's got a great Tracy Letts performance. I got no complaints about Deepwater. Hmm. Maybe I'll check it out. I would recommend it. Oh, wow. It, uh, has a 51 on Metacritic. Eh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fine movie. It's based on a Patricia Highsmith novel. That's cool. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. She wrote Carol. She sure did. Very importantly. I think it was an appropriate tribute to Patricia Highsmith, who, as we discussed on our Carol episode, loved snails and carried around snails in her purses. Are there snails in the movie? There are snails in the movie. Ben Affleck plays like a guy who's really into snails. I wonder if that's from the book and if she wrote her passion for snails into it or if it's a shout out to her personal life. Either way, I enjoyed it. Now, Indecent Proposal is also based on a book, in this case by Jack Englehard. By all accounts, the book and the movie do not have a ton in common, except for the basic premise of Guy offers a million dollars to sleep with a married woman. Now, I don't know much about the book, except what I read on the differences from the book section of the Wikipedia page. And I... that section threw me for a loop when I found out that in the book... The main character, like the Woody Harrelson character is Jewish and the Robert Redford character is Arab and it's basically written as a Israel versus other Arab Middle Eastern countries exploration. Yeah, I have also not read the book, but by all accounts, a lot of it is talking about that stuff. Which is unexpected for me, at least. (laughs) Sure. It also adds some, like, different levels to it where... That could be an interesting story. It could be a pretty dicey story. (laughs) I appreciate getting away from that because it lets you just get into how might this particular circumstance affect a relationship as opposed to putting all that context on it. I know Halle Berry pursued an audition for this movie pretty deliberately. And the producers and Adrian Lyon were like, no, because then it's Robert Redford trying to buy a black woman and we don't want to get into that. Yeah. That would look pretty bad. Right. That makes it a very different movie. An interesting movie. Sure. I did think about Get Out a decent amount during this. But one that is very different from what the goal of this movie is. Does the? I wonder if the book has such a like neat little happy ending. I, I would believe it does not. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't strike me as a book ending. I was surprised. Were you expecting such a happy ending? No, I wasn't. And I think we'll talk about that when we get to believability and when we talk about whether we think they'll stay together. Yes. But yeah, I think the ending of this movie is interesting. I'm less interested in the two of them at the end of the movie than I am in Gage in the Robert Redford character. I'm fascinated by this decision to lie to Diana to concoct this history of other million dollar women on the grounds that she would never look at him the way that she looked at David. Which is effectively an admission of defeat. Because mm-hmm. his whole premise in the movie was actually anything can be bought. And I'm going to buy you and I'm going to buy your affection ultimately. But he loses that bet. Yeah. Like I said, this was a controversial movie when it came out. A lot of the criticism came from feminist quarters where people argued that Diana doesn't really have any agency. That it's like a movie about men arguing over who she belongs to. And I do see that criticism but i think the movie's a lot more complicated than that again I, like i said at the beginning i think it's about people completely failing to communicate where like in the scenes where david and diana are talking about whether or not to take the deal it's less one person saying this is what we should do it's more both of them refusing to be the one to say they should not i think the movie contains a lot of scenes of two men 
debating it without talking to Diana because that's how Gage approaches it. Like, he addresses all of his conversation to David. And David then tries to redirect it to Diana. Right, and Gage is a bad dude. Like, the movie is not endorsing that perspective. Right, that's what I was thinking, is the movie is saying that that is a bad thing while depicting it. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at, too. And like I said, the screenwriter, Amy Holden Jones, who also wrote Mystic Pizza, which we talked about last week. Uh, Yes, last week, of course. She defended it in that same way. She said it's Diana who ultimately makes the choice. She did also have this very strange comment where she said Diana's storyline is the ultimate female fantasy. And I don't know about that, but I'm not a woman, but I don't know about that. I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know about that there. But part of the discourse around all this is there is this feminist critique that I don't think is, like, worthless. Like, I think the movie is interested in these questions. But part of it was also complicated because, like, yes, it's directed by Adrian Lyne, who has this reputation. It's also written by a woman, but it's written by a woman based on a book by a man. Its producer is a woman, Sherry Lansing, who then, in the period between this movie being shot and it coming out, Sherry Lansing became the head of the studio that released it. Like she was running Paramount for most of the 90s. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. She ran it from 92 until the Viacom split in 2004. Mm-hmm. So Lansing is also involved in a lot of the like different like alternate castings that were floated. Of all the ones that I found, I think the most interesting ones are they tried pretty hard and came pretty close to getting Warren Beatty to play the Robert Redford character. That casting also tracks, and I think he would be even creepier. Yes. If it was Warren Beatty. The other thing is, for a while, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman together were looking to do the David and Diana parts. Is this before Eyes Wide Shut or after? Eyes Wide Shut is the end of the decade. It's 99. Okay. Because that would be weird to do this after Eyes Wide Shut, but I see why they would want to do it. No, the subtext while you're watching Eyes Wide Shut is their marriage is about to fall apart. Right. I need to watch that movie. It's so good. My fiance and I did a March Madness movie series during the month of March where we interpreted really broadly and it wasn't March Madness in the bracket sense. It was just kind of crazy movies in the month of March. And so we interpreted it really broadly. We watched all kinds of stuff and one of them was Eyes Wide Shut and it just rocks. Well, I will add that to my list. Now, despite being kind of terribly reviewed, there are people like Ebert who liked it Like I said, this was a gigantic hit. It opened on April 9th, 1993 to $18 million in first place. And then it proceeded to stay in first place for four weeks. Wow. (laughs) That's a long time for a erotic drama. Right. An R-rated movie. Yeah. So, like, that's the thing where, you know, it's not getting Adrian Lyon another Best Director nomination, but it made a ton of money. It's not getting the Oscar nominations that... Fatal Attraction did either. Instead, it was like the big movie at that year's Razzies, where it got worst picture, worst screenplay, and worst supporting actor for Woody Harrelson. I hate the Razzies. The Razzies stink. None of that's called for. This movie's pretty good. Um, It did get the MTV Movie Award for Best Kiss. Oh, good. (laughs) Demi Moore was also nominated for both Best Female Performance and, gross, Most Desirable Female. Ew. That's I, uh, wow, I've never hated anything more. That category only existed for five years. This year, she lost to Janet Jackson in Poetic Justice. The other winners, in 1992, Linda Hamilton won for Terminator 2. 93, Sharon Stone won for Basic Instinct. Gross. 94, Janet Jackson for Poetic Justice. 95, Sandra Bullock in Speed. And 96, Alicia Silverstone in Clueless. That's so gross. It's a really gross category. Yeah. The other nominees this year, along with Jackson and Moore, were Kim Basinger in The Getaway, Mm. Alicia Silverstone in The Crush, and Sharon Stone in Sliver. MTV Movie Awards, you give us such good stuff, and then you just gotta throw some shit in the pile. I wish the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards had existed during the era of the erotic thriller, because I would love to know if they were into it or not. It would be so fascinating to see their rewards. If they would try and cash in and do, like, most erotic love story for grown-ups. Yeah, right, that would be a great category. Or just have, you know, have the most desirable male and female categories, but for AARP. Yeah. 
over 55. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we will get into a lot in this discussion of the romance, I believe. So do you want to start talking about the romantic plot line? Let's do it. So every week we break down the romantic plot line into five points to guide conversation. Will, will you take us to point number one? Okay, so we've kind of talked through most of our first point. And that's just this relationship between David and Diana Murphy, who we are told in voiceover at the start of the movie, met in high school glee club. Gross. The kind of thing that I would love to see followed up on again. I'd love to see them doing a little glee club number (laughs) in their little house. And as I said, David proposed at 19. They've been married for seven years and they have a lot of sex and they have a lot of fights and they throw things at each other and it's pretty bad. And they almost burned down their house at one point because Diana was throwing clothes at David and then they started having sex and some of the clothes were on the stove. What do you think this is, huh? Look, see your shoes on the table? What is the problem? I don't need to do your fucking laundry. Honey, I'll pick it up. You don't have to get oh, violent. Oh, this, huh? Oh, no, 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 no. You put that down, honey. Here? That is serious. You're going to hurt somebody with oh, that. hurt somebody, huh? You're out of your mind. Now, hold, hold, hold. Okay, now, fine. Ow! God damn it! Oh, come on, let's just relax. Did I hurt you? No, come on. I'm sorry. Really? Yeah. You were kidding? That, like, angry throwing things fight into sex. Bad news. Yeah. This is not a great relationship. No, it is not. David's an architect, and... He was, like, building his dream house. But then the 90s recession hits, and so he loses his job, and they're, like, out of money. They need $50,000 to hold on to their home. Diana is a realtor, so she is also losing... Or, she didn't lose her job, but she's not selling any houses for commission. Right. So, they managed to borrow $5,000 from David's dad, but that's only a tenth of what they need. And David wakes up in the middle of the night and says, you know what we should do? We should go to Vegas and turn this $5,000 into the money we need. Terrible, terrible, terrible decision. It's a terrible decision that seems to be working when initially they like have some great nights. I love the way Line shoots the casino. For starters, great work on the sound mix. It's so loud anytime they're on the casino floor. It's a really good depiction of a casino. Right, where it's like hard to focus on anything. In the, like, noisy parts of the casino where they stay around. Like, you know, it's much calmer in the high roller poker tables where Redford is playing. But, like, I love the way he shoots the craps table following the dice. It's a lot. It's over the top, but it works. It works for the environment. Mm Mm-hmm. I have very little interest in going to casinos, but I gotta say, the camaraderie of craps does seem fun. Yeah, it seems like a good time. But so they do well. They they do great. They make... What do they make that first night? Like, half the money? 25,000, yeah. So they're halfway there. They have victorious, vigorous money sex on the waterbed where they're just like, they've got all the money spread out on the bed. They're like grabbing it in clumps in their fists and rubbing it all over each other. The waterbed is rippling beneath them. And then unsurprisingly, they proceed to lose all of it the next day. And that's where like, you know, there's the scene of them in the diner where Diana's like, we had said we weren't going to go below 5,000, like so that they wouldn't be worse than they started. And it's like, it's not that you shouldn't have gone below 5,000. It's you should have set a new floor after you made a bunch of money. <laughs> like, yeah. the new floor should have been, we're not going to go below 20. Like, say, we started with five yesterday. We're going to do five again today. Yeah, but that is not how the business model of Las Vegas works. Right, they got caught up. They did shoot this at the Hilton Casino in Vegas between the hours of 4 a.m. and 4 p.m., like, while the casino was still working around them. Oh, wow. But while this is all happening, at one point, Diana goes to the little shop and finds the little black dress and catches the eye of a handsome stranger who tells her to buy it. But she says, I can't afford it. This really is the beginning of point number two, because this kind of is the beginning of Gage trying to buy Diana Mm -hmm. one way or another. I really think you ought to have the dress. Let me buy it for you. You want to buy me this dress? Yeah. Why? <laughs> well, I've enjoyed watching you. You've earned it. No, I haven't. The dress is for sale. I'm not. 
Like, I don't want to take your money because you liked leering at me as I thought about what it would be like to have a dress. Right. And then their next run-in is at the poker table where he's playing poker with $10,000 chips. And then while she's standing near him, he wins money for the first time. And he calls her over and says, you're my good luck charm. Hang out with me today. But it starts, too, with, like, he goes up to... Oh, right. He talks to David. David. And he says, would you mind lending me your wife? Gross. And that's, again, the beginning of he always takes it to David, not to Diana. Mm -hmm. So this is then when he calls her over. And after a lot of back and forth, eventually she agrees. Right. She sits with him for a hand. He loses. And she's like, yeah, well, I don't really like cards anyway. And he's like, well, then you'd be a terrible, like, card luck charm. You should have told me that. What do you like? You like dice? And so, like, she's just trying to get out. She has no interest in this. But then he writes a million-dollar check, basically just for show, to keep her interested. He gets a million dollars in chips, goes over to the craps table, has her roll the dice, and wins. A million dollars. But, like, that's the thing, where over and over again, he uses money to manipulate people into just doing what he wants. Right. And as a reward, he offers to pay for them to stay in the nicest hotel room and to, like, take them out to dinner. He also says, like, you know, get anything else you want. He, like, is heavily hinting that she should go buy the dress. Mm-hmm. But, I guess, knowing that she won't, he just buys it himself and has it sent to their room. Right. And so they, like, have dinner. They're going through. It's this whole kind of strange thing where, on the one hand, it's, like, kind of cool to be able to experience this. But also, there is a clear power imbalance through all of it. And they hang out a lot more than I expected before the proposal is made. Right. It's not until at the end of the night that finally Redford offers this suggestion where he says basically, you know, David, you you seem satisfied. It seems like you're happy with your life. You know, I'm not satisfied. And ultimately he makes this offer where he says, you know, what would you say if I offered you a million dollars for one night with your wife? And then, you know, they say, you can't buy love. They shut it down and leave. Pretty quickly when he first offers it. But then he just keeps insisting. He's like, this is not a hypothetical. Think it over. Don't be rash. Like, Really consider it. That's a reflex answer because you view it as hypothetical. But let's say that there were real money behind it. I'm not kidding. Million dollars. Now, the night would come and go, but the money could last a lifetime. Think of it. Million dollars. A lifetime of security. For one night. Like we said, you know, what's going on here is they never really say it in this conversation when they're talking about it. They never bring up their financial status. But we know it and they know it. And that's undergirding all of this as we watch them, like, talk themselves into it being a good idea. Where Diana's saying, like, it wouldn't mean anything. It's just my body, not my mind, not my heart. They start talking through them. Like, look, we've both had sex with other people before. This will just be another person that I've had sex with. It doesn't have to be weird. Right. And then they even have, like, a jokey moment where they laugh about their ex-relationships and say, like, I'm glad we're able to laugh about this. So they decide to go for it. We don't actually see on screen, like, one person say, yes, we're going to do this. It it feels like the kind of thing they've arrived at together. Mm-hmm. And then they call their lawyer and have a contract written up. Their scumbag lawyer friend, Oliver Platt. And the scene where he's talking to them, selling himself slash having two people sell themselves to him like two movie writers, is so funny. Well, where he starts shouting like, what are you talking about? For a woman like Diana, we could have gotten two million easy? Yeah, that's why you never negotiate without your lawyer present. But so they do, they agree to the deal, and Diana goes off with Gage. And is whisked off to his private yacht. On a helicopter to a yacht. But while that is happening, David actually changes his mind and rushes after to put a stop to it. But it's too late. But it's too late. Which also is not taking her opinion into account. I guess they'd have to discuss it. But he's decided it's over. So he goes to chase it after and shut it down. But it's too late. And that's that. And that takes us to point number three. So we never see her and Gage have sex. They're on the boat. They fight. And eventually she's basically like, let's just get it over with. And then we cut back to Diana and David together. I mean, we do see them properly reunited. When she comes back into the hotel room and he's just sitting on the floor making the remote control curtains go back and forth. 
And he, like, gets up to her, and, like, first thing he does is, like, wipe all the lipstick off her face and then make out with her. Right. And then they basically agree not to talk about it and forget it ever happened. Which was a bad plan. A bad plan. But obviously, tension bubbles up throughout since they don't talk about it. He does try and talk about it, and she's like, we agreed to not talk about it. What is that? You know what it is. Where did you get this? In your wallet. Well, I've never seen it before. Well, it was right there in the old secret compartment. David, I don't even use that. Have you been seeing him? No, I haven't. You can't stop thinking about him, can you? You won't let me. Can you, Dee? What are you doing going through my wallet anyway? I don't trust you. Well, you know what? I don't trust you either. Well, then we're even. He's, like, constantly, like, looking for more information about it. Like, he keeps pushing. He keeps asking, like, what did you do? Did you have sex? Was the sex good? And he's, like, eventually, after he finds his card in her wallet with his personal number, he convinces himself that she's still seeing him and goes and yells. Which she had not been seeing him. She does go to see him at one point because she finds out, as we all had to know by that point, that Gage is the one who bought their property. Yeah, the bank foreclosed while they were gone in Vegas. And even though they had the money, it has been purchased. And, of course, it was bought by Gage, which... Everyone can see a mile away. And so she goes and yells at him and throws a tablecloth of food and basically hits everyone except Gage, which I thought was funny. And then, yeah, she yells at him and he's like, what can I say? You talked it up. It was a great property. But then David's like, oh, I knew you were secretly going to see Gage. And she's like, you have to listen to me. Yeah. And then this is where they basically break up, right? Right. This is basically it. Yeah. So they are broken up, and this brings us to point four. Right, so in point number four, they are, like, effectively split up. Diana is living her life. David is down in the dumps. But the thing is, because Gage sees people as objects, he keeps pursuing Diana, repeatedly refusing to take no for an answer. He shows up at her office, and, like, by putting pressure on her boss, forces her to show him, like, a bunch of nice houses. Then he could be like, don't you think we should live in these houses together? And just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. She teaches, like, U.S. citizenship classes to help make extra money. And he starts showing up at her class to be like, hey, how are you doing here? Like, you can't throw me out of class. It's very obnoxious. And not at all charming. And yet, somehow, it works. After the class, he takes her to this, like, house he bought. And they have a kiss as she's leaving. And, like, that's kind of that. They're now together. So it's like during this period, at one point, Woody Harrelson like, in pouring rain, finds the two of them getting out of a limo and gives his whole cuckolding speech. But after a retort from Diana, he decides basically he needs to get his life back together. So he gets a job teaching architecture and kind of comes to peace with things. But not entirely. You know, Diana still sues him for divorce and he's not thrilled about that. Yeah, but he does do it after spending all what a million dollars on a hippo i think the mistake i made in vegas was thinking that i could forget what we did i thought we were invincible but now i know that the things that people in love do to each other they remember and if they stay together it's not because they forget it's because they forgive Well, I think an interesting piece in all of this is that, like, very quickly, neither of them wants the million dollars. Where he doesn't want it because to him it feels tainted. It's representative of the dissolution of his marriage. And Diana feels like she did this for David. She did this so he could, like, you know, have this house, have this life. Like, he should have it. And so they've both been refusing this money. And he's like, the way I can get rid of it is just, like put it on something she likes which is a hippos and then he signs the divorce papers at the zoo auction in the rain again and this brings us to point five yes they go their separate ways point five is also back where the movie started with the two of them in separate areas woody goes to the pier and is just sitting there dejected diana gage are leaving in a limo and gage starts talking about like yeah you know uh you sure are the best of them the Million Dollar Woman Club. Million Dollar Club. Now you've got it. You told me you'd never done that before. How, how many members would you say there are? 
Members? Yeah. Worldwide? Yeah. Think a couple of us. Remember the one that wouldn't stop hiccuping? What? The waitress from Oklahoma. Every time you came near her, she yes. would convulse in the hiccup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten. Quite a night. Right, he starts getting his, like, mysterious body man to back him up on, like, oh, yes, like, much better than those other women. And obviously, the body man is confused and stumbles, and so Diana doesn't believe it, but she accepts it. So, she leaves, because, you know, she's not going to accept the indignity of being one of dozens of women that Mm -hmm. Gage has paid a million dollars to be with. And she leaves, and she catches the bus, and she goes to the pier where she reunites with David. And then they kiss, and then the movie's over. So, Mark, what do you think of the romance of a decent proposal? Well, so, points towards its believability. They were a bad couple before the proposal and the sex, so it makes sense that they wouldn't communicate about it and handle right. it poorly. Where I'm losing points is, honestly... I don't know if I believe that they'd get back together after that. No, I don't really think they would. It was a pretty bad situation, and honestly, it really feels like just Line and the producers wanted the movie to have a happy ending. Yeah, it feels like things are too far gone. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the least believable, where would you rate this one? Maybe like a 6. Yeah, because they do have a lot. They're together for like... 10 years so there is some history there i think a six feels right i guess the other weakness would be like diana getting with gage yeah like would he ever actually be able to move past that well yeah and also like would diana like when gage is pursuing diana oh like her accepting it at all yeah yeah good point i may have just talked myself down to a five yeah that is true i forgot about that part five sounds good so, do you think that any of these people are dateable? No. I think we've made it pretty clear <laughs> that we think they're all bad. Yeah, no good. Do you think Diana and David would stay together? I think the answer is, of course not. I think, of course not. I don't think they would have gotten back together in the first place. It's a horrible relationship. All right, Will. If you had to pick one person from this movie to date, who would you choose? I don't know. You know who? Actually, I do know. Who? The waitress in the diner. When they are debating what to do with their scant money left, she is intelligent enough. She's not encouraging them. She clearly doesn't approve. She's just like, I'm just doing my job trying to get past these dumb people. I'm going to go with the woman playing craps next to David when they first get to the casino. Because she seems like a very fun time. That's true. Yeah. All right, Mark. Last question. Should there be an Indecent Proposal musical? Now, this is a tough one, because I liked the movie. I don't think it's that believable, but I think a musical could be fun. But also, I think it would probably end up terrible. Paint me a picture of the good Indecent Proposal musical. Well, I mean, it's so heightened already that the addition of song doesn't actually feel that out of the realm of possibility. You have the villain seduction song. I would love to see a surreal money sex musical number. Yeah. I mean, his song where he gives the proposal is like a classic, like whatever Lola wants number. But Yeah, but I also feel like it would be a like kind of low, like... Yeah, I can't think of any... Like a speak sing kind of thing. Right. Like a Hades in Hades Town style voice doing a whatever Lola wants. Because it has to be more fun than Hades seduction song. Hades is exactly the vibe yeah. of performance I was thinking of, though. So I think it could be done. But let me guess. You're going to tell me it has been done. It has been done. That doesn't shock me at all. So the Indecent Proposal musical premiered in London in 2021. Oh, wow. More recent than I expected. Now, officially, it's based on the book. Okay. Not the movie. It does not have the, like, racial religious component of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. I don't know what it has beyond the, like, basic what would you do question. But it's out there. All right, Will. I think that's about it for 
an indecent proposal. We've been proposed to indecently, and we did it. I'm really glad we watched this. I want to, again, shout out, you must remember this, and the recent erotic 80s miniseries. It's just the best podcast there is. Next week, we will be releasing our hidden episode, and by hidden, I mean we've been sitting on it for a, a few months now. A movie brought to you by Maura Redmond, similarly to our adventure with the Peostables. It's another Hallmark movie in the key of love. Yeah, this movie stars Broadway star and COVID skeptic Laura Osnes as a lady who has been helping to plan weddings, but should really get back to singing. Honestly, we probably should have done this this week because this is the first episode after your marriage, and I forgot how marriage-focused that movie was. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I thought this would be a fun one because it's like, I'm married, and all right, it's time for Indecent Proposal. Also fair. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love Love Pod, and you can email us questions and movie suggestions at lovelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. Last question, Will. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from Indecent Proposal? You must communicate about what you are thinking and feeling, or your relationship will fall apart. My advice? Join Glee Club. It seemed to work for those rapscallions on Glee, also. I hope you find love at regionals, Mark. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) What are regionals? Uh, Anyway, until next time, I'm Oh, Mark, two things. But no, no, two things we didn't talk about. Oh, God, what did we forget? Number one, this is the inspiration for my favorite Bob's Burgers episode. It is. Oh, my God. The other thing is... I can't believe I did. I meant to bring this up because the whole time I'm watching this movie, I can't believe I'm just diving back in like this. The whole time we were watching this movie, I was thinking about how much I was enjoying it. And also what a bummer it was to realize that like this premise today would be a miniseries. Like it would be like eight hour long episodes. It would be what if. So that's the thing. Is I was thinking, <laughs> and there would be a whole app. Ep- this would be a miniseries. It would be boring. There'd be a whole episode of them deciding how to do it. It would like take an hour instead of two minutes. And I was like, I feel like I have seen this. And like two thirds of the way into the movie, I was like, oh my gosh, Netflix is what if I have literally seen the modern miniseries version of this. Yeah, it's what if. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after you're done listening to Erotic 80s, go back and listen to our bonus episode on Netflix miniseries, what if. And then go watch the Bob's Burgers Thanksgiving episode inspired by this movie. Yeah, uh, that's all we got. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye! the cranberry sauce. We're having mashed potatoes. Ooh, the turkey looks great. Thank you for loving me. Glenn. Thank you for being there. Please. Thank you for loving me. Oh, God. Everyone's thanking. The whole Glenn. world's thanking you. Stop. Thanking Glenn. us Stop. for thanking you. Glenn. Kill the turkey. Lynn!